I am about to study the incorruptible, inerrant Word of God. I open my heart to God's message. I humble my mind to His wisdom, and I rest my hopes on His grace. I will accept its rebukes with repentance, rejoice in its truth by faith, and trust in its promises that can never fail. I can be what it says I can be, I can do what it says I can do, and I can change what it says I can change as I trust in His grace and Spirit. I covenant with God. You guys got it. To grow, and I am ready to change as I hide His Word in my heart and honor Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. It's great to be back, and I want to take just a moment, as I did last week, just to say thank you to... uh, Pastor Steve and Pastor Don, Pastor Kevin, they filled the pulpit so well, and you were fed so well, so I don't feel sorry for you at all. So, uh, uh, good to be back. We've just shared our declaration, and uh, many of you uh, know that we've been doing that about, probably about 13 years, maybe 14 years here at New Hope. I think we started it, I'm not sure exact date, but it was back about 2003 or 4. Uh, actually, I, I sat down and wrote that in, about, in a flurry as God put it on my heart in about uh, five minutes before a service. And uh, we used it for the first time. And um, I was talking with a pastor of a large church in San Diego. Many of you don't know this, but uh, there's been several churches that have adopted this Declaration. We call it the New Hope Declaration. They just call it something else, and that's fine. And I've told them that they're welcome to do that. And I was talking with a pastor in San Diego this week, and uh, he called me about another matter, and we were talking. He says, oh, by the way, you know that declaration you do? He says, I stole it. Is that okay? I said, well, I guess it is. He said, we use it at our church now, and I'm glad it's spreading. But the commitment that we declare every week is an important one. And uh, he's sitting next to a large university that has a lot of professors in it. And he says, you know, it's interesting how they're interacting with that when we talk about the, you know, the inerrant Word of God. And he says, it's just really been good. So um, this morning, uh, I want to take a moment, and uh, this is going to be kind of a standalone message. Uh, Next week, we're going to be having a very important time as we're going to be talking about some of the strategies that we as a church are taking as we move into the fall to enable us as a church to better reach our community. And so I hope you'll be here next Sunday as we're going to be talking about that reach aspect of of uh, of our mission. But this morning, I want to take some time to talk to you about the dangers in our culture. Uh, One of the responsibilities of a pastor is to help his people not conform to the dangers of our culture. We live in a dangerous culture. Uh, The Apostle Paul and many other of the apostles told us that the last days would be dangerous days. They would be perilous times, as Paul put it. And that we had to be on our guard not to conform to the world system and the attitudes of the world but rather we're to continue to seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so this morning, uh, I want to, if you'll allow me, take a moment to kind of highlight one of the, uh, what I would call a besetting sin of our culture, 
which seems to be evangelizing the church to some extent. And I hope that this will be helpful in helping us as the people of God to be on our guard against this particular sin, which our culture has embraced in full. And uh, the title of the message this morning is called Something Deadly. And you may notice uh, that it would be something deadly if you were doing it, okay? So you get the idea. And uh, this morning you'll see the meaning of that in just a moment as we go a little further. The Bible makes it clear that all sin is deadly, uh, especially all unrepented sin. The Apostle Paul is the one who told us the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Now, some sins are more dangerous to certain generations because it is the besetting sin to which the character of that generation makes its members more easily the victim and slave. Now, I wrote that down for you this morning because I want you to think about those words. A besetting sin is something that causes us because we're kind of enculturated, we're kind of conditioned to accept it and consider it normal. And our generation has kind of embraced a certain sin that we need to be careful of. And this morning I want to try to help us identify and conquer one of those deadly sins, which is a besetting sin for our generation, both without and within the church. Now, one of the characteristics of such a sin is that it is one of the most difficult things for us to see. And why? Because we're at home with it. It kind of seems normal because we kind of grow up with it. It's kind of everywhere we look. The culture is embracing it. It's the attitude of the world in which we live. And to kind of introduce what I'm talking about, let me give you a quote from a very well-known American. And uh, he's from another generation. And so you'll excuse his uh, Elizabethan English, please. But here's what he says. Dost thou love life? Then do not squander time, for it's the stuff life is made of. For it's the stuff life is made of. Now, to kind of help you maybe from a Christian perspective, wrap your minds around what Ben is trying to share with us from his rather American cultural perspective, early American cultural perspective, let, let me uh, share with you a little anecdote. Uh, let's imagine that you live in a kingdom with a king. And let's say that the king calls you in one day and says, look, I'm making you an ambassador to the nations. And what I'm going to do is I am going to give you every morning, I'm opening up an account and your name is on it, and you have absolute power over that account. And every morning, I'm going to put $86,400 in that account. How many of you would like that? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, a few of you. <laughs> $86,400 is going to go into that account every morning. Now, however, there are some rules and some regulations on this. Number one, your ultimate purpose is to use as much of this money to do good in the world and to bring recognition to our king and kingdom as possible. And you will be rewarded at the end according to how well you invest it. Secondly, you're, will, you, you're perfectly free to use it 
to take care of your family and your personal needs, your food, your housing, your clothing, your transportation, your education, your rest, your renewal. You can even use it to supply reasonable vacations and times of fun and recreation for your family and you. However, the rest of it is to be invested in doing good on behalf of your king and your kingdom. Any of the $86,400 that is left at the end of the day that you have not used will be zeroed out of your account. You lose them forever. The next morning, another $86,400 will be put into the account and you start over again. However, at any time, I, the king, can choose to close the account and you will undergo a review and will be either commended or reprimanded on how you have used the funds. Now, that may sound like a kind of bizarre anecdote, but the truth is, is that it's actually very close to reality. In fact, something much more precious is very close to that. You see, the bank account is your life, and the investment that the king, God, makes into you every day is that of time. Each morning you wake up, God puts 86,400 seconds into your account. That's what you have every day. And every day you will determine how you use those seconds. And if you do not invest that time but simply waste it, you're going to lose it at the end of the day because the account is zeroed out. The balance is zero, and then you get a new 86,400 seconds the next day. And at any moment, the king may close your account and call for an accounting. Now, I think that the application becomes obvious, becomes clear. Actually, a story very similar to that anecdote was found in the wallet of Coach Bear Bryant, the coach of Alabama, when he died in 1982. And it was titled simply, no one knows who actually authored it, but it was simply titled, The Magic Bank Account. Well, let me suggest this morning that there really is a kind of magic or supernatural bank account that is being invested into your life every day. Because time is precious. Time is a gift. It has been given to you by God. And every day, God renews it. But at the same time, at any moment, God could say, the account's closed. And we'll have an accounting. The scriptures make it clear that we're going to give an account to God for every moment of our lives. Now, some problems have arisen in regard to this idea of time management in our lives. Those problems have to do basically with, first, we have become ignorant of where the resources come from and who owns it. You see, God is the source of our lives. And the first problem is, is that we've become ignorant that God really owns our lives and he's the source of it. And we have begun to ignore the fact of our stewardship and accountability to God. In other words, who's responsible and who's going to call us to accounting. So what do these facts point to? Well, they point to something that in the ancient world, at least one of them, they would be a part of the list of what they called the seven deadly sins. Now, you say, what are the seven deadly sins? We don't talk about them much today, but let me give you the ancient list real quickly. Here's what it looks like. First of all, 
would be pride, which is excessive belief in one's own ability that interferes with the individual's recognition of the grace of God. It has been called the sin from which all others arise. Pride is also known in the ancient language as vanity. Then comes sloth. This is the avoidance of physical and spiritual work. Then comes envy, which is the desire for others' traits, status, ability, or situation. Then comes gluttony, which is an inornate desire to consume more than that which one requires. An inordinate desire. Lust is an inordinate craving for the pleasures of the body. Anger is manifested in individuals who spurn love and opt instead for fury. It is also known as wrath. And then the final in the seven list is seven list of sins is greed, is a desire for material wealth or gain, ignoring the realm of the spiritual. It is also called avarice or covetousness. Now, this kind of list can be somewhat misleading. Why? Because as we learned as we opened this morning, all sins are deadly. And these are called the seven deadly sins as if all other sins are not really that bad. But not really. All sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death. Now, it might be likely, so I'm going to cover this for just a moment. It might be likely that someone might point out that the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5 talks about the fact that there are sins that lead to death and then there are sins that do not lead to death. In fact, let's just read a couple of verses here and talk about that for a moment. In 1 John 5, 16, he's closing the letter and he says this, if anyone sees his brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, they should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying they should pray about that. All wrongdoing, and the word here in the Greek means that which falls below justice and holiness, is sin. And therefore, and, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Pasa adikia hamartia esten is actually the Greek here where he says all wrongdoing is sin. In other words, he's saying that uh, everything that falls below the standard of God's holiness and righteousness is sin. But John is using sin, and he makes it clear he's using sin in the broadest sense of the term when he says all wrongdoing is sin. He's just painting with a very broad brush. And this allows him to make a distinction. And what is the distinction? All of us at times even those of us who pursue the heart of God the most, because we're imperfect, fall below God's perfection. We, through ignorance or through weakness or whatever, we fall below and we may sin against someone. We may do something inadvertently. And whenever you see a brother or sister do something like that, you should not be jumping on them and saying, I want justice. What you should be doing is praying for them and asking God to give them life and light. In other words, as Peter would say, love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, we just love each other in the midst of all of our infirmities and the fact that we're not perfect. Anyone here think you're perfect? Okay, no hands, good. I was going to give an altar call right then, but if anyone thought they were, thought we'd have a little reality check. 
But the point is, none of us are perfect, and therefore, we do sin against each other, and we should be willing to offer each other grace and pray for each other under those circumstances. But John also points out that there are sins that lead to death or at least reveal that a person has spiritual death in their life, and they're not really truly a believer. Uh, You see, the point is, is that he's talking about sins that are intentional, willful defiance of God and intentionally defiant of his law of love. When someone does that, we're not free to pray for them as if that will take care of it. That person must personally repent and ask God's forgiveness for themselves. You can't do it on their behalf. You can't do it for them. And so that's the distinction that John is making there. He's not saying that sin is not deadly. If it's unintentional and it has to come from weakness, then of course we're covered by the grace of God. And when we come to know about it, we certainly should take responsibility for it and ask God for grace. But those who are willfully defiant must of course take care of it before God themselves. However, when we look at a list like the seven deadly sins, this list does point to the primary sins which are common to mankind. Now, the one I want to focus on this morning is this, sloth, sloth, the avoidance of physical or spiritual work. Now, I want you to remember what I said at the beginning. I said this, some sins are more dangerous to certain generations because it is the besetting sin to which the character of that generation makes its members more easily the victim and the slave. I believe that sloth is a besetting sin of this particular generation. And unfortunately, the, the culture around us is starting to evangelize the church rather than the church evangelizing the culture. We should be evangelizing the culture and calling them away from that sin. And yet, unfortunately, it's creeping in too often into the lives of God's people. Now, let's talk just a few moments about the sin of sloth. The sin of sloth. Now, where does that term come from, sloth? Well, as you know, there's an animal that actually has lent its name to this particular sin. And so let's put the picture of that animal up. There it is. It's not a very pretty animal. And I've been told by people who've gotten near one in the wild that they kind of stink a little bit. They're unkept and dirty. Um, But the sloth is known for its lack of movement and lack of of, un, of productivity and slowness. It does everything very, very slow. And so it becomes kind of a word picture for this thing, this concept. And while sloth is defined as an avoidance of physical and spiritual work, this is merely a description of its visible effects. This is not the root, but the branches. Now let me give you a few pictures. And those of you who are watching on live stream, you won't be able to see these because we didn't clear them to do that in time. So, but look at these pictures quickly here. This is some pictures of people maybe being slothful. Uh, Here's a a father, evidently, uh, swinging his little daughter, it looks like maybe, out there while he sits about 50 feet away with a rope and drinks iced tea. I don't know how uh, lazy you can get, but that's pretty bad when you got the kid out there. And then here's another one. Uh, Somebody couldn't get enough ambition to actually put the roll and replace the run. Anybody? I'm not going to ask you that. Okay. And then <laughs> here's another one. Uh, this guy can't even hold his own hamburger. Uh, <laughs> so if you are a little lazy and can't get your hands quite to your mouth, that could save you. All right. And then here's another one. Uh, 
here's a pigeon taking the train, so why fly when you can take the train? And, uh, <laughs> and here's another one. Uh, I think we got some more here. Yeah, here's a guy who wanted to pay a tip, but he didn't want to exercise the mental effort to actually add up what it would be. So he just said, I'm going to give you $25. You do the math in between. So that's, that's pretty lazy, don't you think? <laughs> and then any of you been guilty of this, taking your dog for a walk while you ride in the pickup or the car? Uh, don't raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this person couldn't get the ambition to take the label off the apple, apple, so they just ate around it. Oh, by the way, health professionals tell us you ought to eat the core because the core is the most nutritious part of the apple. That's just a little aside for you. And then here's a little ice cream cone thing that will rotate the ice cream for you so you don't have to actually use the effort to rotate, rotate the cone. So I don't know if any of you are lazy enough you need that. But uh, the, it's, it's on the market, evidently, if you need it, okay? So we got, yeah, we got another one here. Here's a Christmas tree in a box, and they simply put the lights on it, on the box, because they didn't want to go to the trouble to set the tree up. Now, I don't know how happy the kids are going to be, be about that, but I don't know how much more slow you can get than that. I would say that's a lack of Christmas spirit. What do you think? Okay, and then here's a guy who is not even going to get out of the car to put fuel in. Now, maybe that was because it was cold. I don't know. But anyway, uh, so that's enough of that. <laughs> so uh, some of you may have seen yourself in that. I don't know. But let me just say this. Uh, yeah, we're kind of talking about those kind of things, and we, we, we giggle at those. But the point is, is that there are more serious things concerning sloth than what we just looked at. The root of sloth is self-idolatry. You see, this self-idolatry has a progressive way of unfolding in the life of a person who's slothful until it actually moves them in the direction of narcissism. In other words, being absorbed with themselves, what they want, and demanding what they want. It starts with certain attitudes that give birth to a predictable downward path. And I want to give you these attitudes real quick. First attitude, and it's often totally... Un, uh, it's hidden to its host, the person who has it. The first attitude is this, my life and time are my own. I can use them as I please. Now we're going to talk about that in a moment, but that's the first attitude that takes us down the pathway to slothfulness. The second attitude that comes out of that is I have a right to please myself, to indulge myself in entertainment and play and the comforts I desire. Third attitude that falls out of that one is work and responsibilities are not an obligation that requires me to put off pleasing myself with my entertainments, play, and comforts. And the fourth one, others' needs come after my need for comfort and self-pleasing. I don't sacrifice myself for others, especially if it means work that interrupts my play and entertainment. And fifth, I have a right to expect others to provide for me so I can live as I please. Now, unfortunately, in the last few decades, some would say that we have seen this become the basement dweller who never leaves home. You know, he's still 45 years old and never left home. But the point is, is that would be one manifestation of slothfulness. But I'm gonna have Grant go back to a slide. I had him slide in here. Uh, 
there's a little statement I heard while I was on vacation, and it's anonymous. That the pastor who quoted it didn't even know who had said it, and uh, it, he was not preaching on slothfulness, but I thought to myself, I wrote it down at the moment he said it, because I thought, boy, I was working on this message. I thought, boy, that's a perfect statement for, for what we're trying to describe here. And here's what it simply says. It says, if you don't do the things you don't want to do when you don't want to do them, you will not get to do the things you want to do when you want to do them. Okay, let's try that again, okay? If you don't do the things you don't want to do when you don't want to do them, you won't get to do the things you want to do when you want to do them. Now, of course, that would be pretty practical wisdom, but it's also something that is taught in Scripture. Now, while I made each of those attitudes that we talked about a moment ago declarative statements so that we could engage them, that's not how they appear to the person that has them in their life, if they appear to them at all. You see, slothfulness makes a person tend to fall into these attitudes by default and never actually embrace them officially or consciously. They may even mentally reject them. However, their slavery to this sin, this spirit of sloth, pulls down their good intentions and causes them to actually act in accordance with these attitudes. Therefore, while others see their actions and then deduce the attitude from it, they don't because they have these internal good intentions. In a person struggling with the sin of sloth, there is often a kind of bipolar uh, divide between their inner life of intention and their outer life of actual actions. The spirit of sloth becomes a kind of short circuit to their good intentions, and their good intentions never actually become actual conduct and character. There are even times, I believe, when God is dealing with someone, especially a Christian, about their slothfulness and about their need to be more productive with their life and the better use of their time, that they feel guilt. And uh, they privately are experiencing possibly deep pain. But what adds to this so often is that those who are enslaved to the spirit of sloth tend to want to escape that pain. And where do they go? They go back to whatever it is they've been doing to waste time. They go back to their slothfulness. They go back to the entertainment. They go back to their media watching. They go back to wasting time, which only increases the guilt. And if anyone tries to confront them, they often become angry and feel that for the moment they're being unjustly accused or mistreated. They're being pulled away from their comforts and their pleasures and their games. But the real problem, of course, is that they're carrying all this guilt. And because this spirit of sloth is party to pride, it's rooted in pride, my life is my own. My time is my own. I have the right to do with it as I please. They often will not repent and confess. They will instead blame shift every time they're confronted. Also, since these imprisoned to sloth become expert procrastinators, they often feel like they're being dealt with unjustly, that you're just being impatient with them. They have every intention of doing what you're asking them to do. It's just they haven't got around to it yet. And uh, I used to carry around a round to it. It was just a little round piece of wood that had to it on it. So as I'd give it to people who said they couldn't quite get around to it. So, but, but the point is, is that they just never notice that they never quite get around to it. Now, the kingdom of God on earth, the church, is suffering from Christians who are unfortunately being evangelized by this spirit of sloth, this sin of sloth in spiritual things. We have the idea that our time is our own. 
Now stop and think with me for a moment. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know that your time is not your own. Why? Number one, you acknowledge that you have been created by God. You acknowledge that your existence is a gift from him. You and I acknowledge that he sustains us in existence every moment, that life and time come from his hand. More than that, we also, as believers, acknowledge that he has sent his son and paid an incredible price to redeem us back. So he, you might say we are twice owned because we have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. The apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of this and reminds us of it as he reminds them. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So we should recognize that our lives and our time does not belong to us. It belongs to God. It's his. He gives it to us like the seconds that are given into our life every day, the 86,400 seconds, they actually belong to God. God is giving us a stewardship. What are we going to do with it? Unfortunately, in our time, many in the church resent God and his church asking them to sacrifice time or comforts or entertainment or pleasures for the sake of others and for the sake of doing those good works which God's people are supposed to be known for in the world. You see, you don't do good works to earn salvation. You do good works because you want to please your king and you love what he loves. He loves people, so you serve people. He loves his church, so you serve his church. He loves the things that he loves become the things that you love. We have embraced, unfortunately, the worldly idea that we are here to be happy and and pleasure ourselves and be entertained. Now, there's nothing wrong with being happy. In fact, I like happy people instead of sad people. Uh, I prefer to be around happy people. There's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with recreation. And Pastor Steve was reminding me after the first service that recreation means to recreate. And a lot of the things we do for recreation doesn't really recreate us. It kind of destroys us to some degree. But the point is, is that God designed all that. There's nothing wrong with that in its proper place and its proper balance. But we have embraced the worldly idea that it's all about pleasure. It's all about pleasing ourselves. And we need to be careful that we don't allow the world to evangelize us. You see, the Apostle Paul warns us that in the last days, that this would become the general attitude of the world. That it would all be about entertaining oneself. It would be about wasting our times doing all those things that are really not productive. In fact, he even warns Timothy, a young pastor, and uh, telling him as he deals with his church to be aware that inside the church in the last days there would be lovers of pleasure. People would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Have, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then he said to Timothy, have nothing to do with them. In other words, this is a very contagious thing. So he says, when you love pleasure and you love your comforts more than you love God, you may have a form of godliness. You may be doing all the right religious things, but you're not really embracing what it means to really love God. Like all sloth enslaved people, many in the church have come to believe that they have a right to their entertainment, play, and comforts, and they deeply resent being asked to sacrifice it for God or for the church or for anyone. Now, 
that's my little diatribe this morning. And so let's, let's move the next direction. The point is, is that you and I in the church have the privilege of being very different from the world. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We do not have to be like that. Now, we all were at one time caught up in the attitudes of the world and God has saved us. We're no better than anyone else, but by the grace of God, we've been set free. And if we haven't been set free, it's time we get with the program because God has provided for you to be free. God has provided for you to invest your life in things that matter. So I want to talk to you for just a moment about freedom from the spirit of sloth. Freedom from the spirit of sloth. If we are going to be free, the first thing we have to do is deal with some attitude issues. And the first one is the pride issue, the pride issue. We have to die to this self-sovereignty idea. The idea that my life is my own, my time is my own, I can do with my life as I please, it's nobody else's, nobody can tell me what to do or not to do. That kind of pride does not fit in the kingdom of God. We have to offer our lives back to God as his because he created us and has bought us with the blood of Jesus. This is the very argument that the Apostle Paul is making with the Roman church after he takes several chapters to tell them, you know, you've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. You should no longer be a slave to sin. You should no longer live like the world lives. Why? Because you are a new creation in Christ. Everything has changed for you. Therefore, he says to them in chapter 12, as he returns to his theme, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that he sent Jesus to die for you, in view of the fact that he's given you his Holy Spirit to pour out his love into your lives and to give you a totally different perspective. He says, in view of all that, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your logically spiritual act of worship. In order to accomplish this, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mindset. In other words, have a totally different mindset from the world. Then you will be able to discern and appreciate what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We live in a day where the mindset of the world has made God's will look like it's not good, it's not pleasing and it's not perfect we laugh at the things of God we mock the things of God in this world system and in this culture and we celebrate the things that God says we ought to be hanging our heads in shame over the truth is we're called to be a different people we're not called to live the same and that's a privilege for us so we have to deal with the pride issue we have to conform our lives to God's sovereignty Second, we have to deal with the love issue. The love issue. You see, as I said, we work for God and his kingdom not to gain salvation, but we do it because we love God, because he has saved us. We work out of our salvation, not for our salvation. You know, the word sloth is actually a translation of a Latin term, asedia, and it uh, means without care. It means to be neglectful. That word actually comes from a deeper, older word, which is in the Greek which is the word Acadia. And Acadia, the alpha at the front of it is without. And then it comes from the word uh, kados, which means care. So it means without care, without diligence, without any kind. It means to be neglectful or indifferent. So 
as you look at this word down through history, you discover that there were three applications. There was a spiritual, a mental, and a physical application. Spiritually, uh, Acadia was applied to religious persons, especially monks, who became indifferent to their duties and obligations to God. And a lot of people think that people who went into a monastery or something would be very diligent about their duties to God. That's not really been historically the case. Sometimes they became quite slothful and were not diligent in their duties. Uh, Mentally, Acadia has a number of distinctive components of which the most important is what would be called affectionlessness, a lack of proper feeling about self or others. It's kind of a mindset that gives rise to boredom, rancor, apathy, and a passive inactivity or sluggish mental state. You see, in the church today, we are kind of in a sluggish mental state. We have forgotten that we're to love God not only with all of our heart, that means our affections, not only with all of our, our heart, soul, which is all of our energies, everything we are, but with our mind. We're to love God with our mind. But we don't want to think anymore. We don't want to engage too much truth. We don't want any compound sentences that might make us scratch our head. You see, but the important thing is, is that God wants us to not be sluggish mentally because truth gives us treasure. Truth equips us. It's like giving us weapons to fight free from the bondages that this enemy tries to put on us. We need that truth. So we need to throw off mental sluggishness. Physically, of course, Acadia is fundamentally defined as the cessation of motion and indifference to work. It finds expression in laziness, idleness, and indolence. Several commentators, I found it interesting, defined Acadia, said the best translation into English of Acadia was actually self-pity, for it conveys both the melancholy or the depression of the condition of slothfulness and the self-centeredness upon which it is founded. It is therefore rooted in a distorted self-love. So what's the answer for that? Well, love of God cures the love of self, the improper love of self. We sacrifice for his church our time, our efforts, and our resources because we love his kingdom, and we have begun to love his people who are the source of that kingdom coming to earth. Our love gives us an eschatological perspective. You say, what in the world is that? Uh, many of you have heard the term eschatology. Eschatology in theology means the study of last things. In other words, so when we're talking about end time, that's eschatology. And so the study of last things, eschaton, uh, talks about how we think this age is going to end. And then after that, how we think the world is going to end. And after that, how God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, which is how things are ultimately going to end up. So that's eschatology. But many people fail to realize we can have an eschatological perspective in our lives that is very important now. In other words, we live in this world in view of the world we're going to. We live in this world because our home is not here, but we are pilgrims passing through. And we're in love with God, we're in love with his kingdom. And so that love for God takes care of that improper, swollen love of self because it's replaced by love for God. So we have to take care of the pride issue, we have to take care of the love issue, but we also have to take care of the grace issue, the grace issue. 
I want to give you a practical, applicable definition of grace, if you allow me to. All of you can answer me and say that grace is unmerited favor, God giving us what we don't deserve. But let me give you kind of an application because that grace, you ask, what is it? Well, it's God doing this. He gives us unmerited desire and power to be what you should be and to do what you should do through submission to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You see, when we say that grace is unmerited favor, we often don't ask, what is that favor? Well, that favor is Jesus Christ given to you through the power of the Holy Spirit to help you desire the things you ought to desire. And then to do the things you ought to do because you don't have the power to desire the proper things or then the power to follow through on them. But we do through the power of the Spirit, we can do that. And that's the grace that's on our lives. We can dream big things with God and we can accomplish those things. It gives us grace to choose discipline and accountability. You know, a lot of people, discipline is kind of a dirty word. Discipline? The Bible says that God disciplines everyone he receives as a son or a daughter. Why? Because he says he does it so that we can be partakers of his holiness. He does it so that we can become like him. The word discipline, where does the word disciple come from? It really is kind of rooted with that word. A disciple is one who is being disciplined or mentored into a way of living because it's not natural to us. It's not normal to us in our sinfulness. But God has called us to something better. He's called us to live a new kind of life. And grace enables us to submit to that. We're not going to sit on the couch and just do nothing and just will our time away with, with uh, you know, whatever entertainment, so on. There's nothing wrong with having those times, but we want to make sure they stay in perspective. But we need grace to be disciplined and accountable, grace to conquer defensiveness and anger when we're confronted, and grace to discover the joy of work and its built-in rewards. <laughs> you know, work is four-letter word, but it's not dirty. It's actually one of the words that will help you discover the joy and the meaning of life when you do it for the right reason. You can work too much, just like you can entertain yourself too much. But the point is, we're all going to give an account to God. And I would just remind you again, if you don't do the things you don't want to do when you don't want to do them, you won't get the chance to do the things you want to do when you want to do them. In fact, we must open our hearts to the reality that the sin of sloth carries with it its own unavoidable consequences. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 4, as we close. A sluggard, which is another term the scripture uses for slothfulness, a slothful person, does not plow in season. So at harvest time, he looks, but finds nothing. Now, it's pretty clear that if you don't plow the fields and plant the seed, you're not going to get the harvest. Sloth is the sin of omission. It omits the cultivation of useful desires and skills so that we through our life can live and perform those good deeds which bring God glory and please him. We don't want to be those kind of people. Every day you should probably pray a prayer like this, Lord, help me live as to bring joy to your heart. You want to bring a smile to the face of your father because of the way you're living and he's got the grace to help you do that. It's amazing to even think that we could be a part of the divine happiness, but we can because of his grace. He can actually delight in us because we are living by the power that he makes available to us. Now, 
let me just say this. If you're young, and I'll let you decide where that falls, okay? Because I know some of you are a little defensive about where that line is, okay? But if you're young, let me say with all the gracious forcefulness I can, youth is the time for plowing and sowing. Youth is the time for plowing and sowing. And according to that proverb that you see here in Proverbs 24, it says the sluggard does not plow in season. He doesn't go out and plow. He doesn't plant the seed. But he goes out at harvest expecting something, but he won't find anything. Youth is the time for plowing and planting. And if you don't, you will come to a day when your life will be barren and empty and your soul will be dying of hunger and thirst from your neglect. There are built-in consequences that cannot be avoided. Again, I know I've said it several times, but if you don't do the things you don't want to do when you don't want to do them, you won't get to do the things you want to do when you want to do them. Remember, God has given you 86,400 seconds today. And likely, he's going to refill that account again tomorrow. He's going to give you 86,400 seconds tomorrow. They are a gift from God. How will you use them? He wants you to use them to support your family. He wants you to use them to recreate. He wants you to use them to have fun. He wants you to use them to get together and enjoy yourselves with your family and your friends. He wants all of that. That's part of life. But he also wants you to give some of that time to bringing him glory and giving him thanks and causing other people good because that's what Christians are to be known for because we do good in the world because God is a God of goodness. And we need to dedicate and sacrifice some time to that. If you do a yearly accounting of our stewardship, if you consider a solo year is about 365.2421897 days, Sure, you like those decimals there. But anyway, 365 days basically multiplied by your 86,400 seconds. This means that God is giving each one of us 31,556,900 seconds a year. And here's the point each one of us are going to give account for every one of those seconds. You see, in my little anecdote, Every one of those seconds is worth more than a dollar. Time is one of the most valuable commodities you have in your life. How you use it will be one of the ways in which we will be judged and our life will be assessed. What are you doing with what God has given you to invest? Your time. Your time. You and I are going to be giving account for every tick of the clock, so to speak. Now, I don't mean by that that we should be thinking that life should be austere and there should be no laughter and no fun. Absolutely the opposite. But our lives can have meaning. Our lives can be harnessed to a purpose. Our life can be harnessed to God's dream. We don't live for ourselves, we live for him. As Paul said, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might as unto the Lord. So it doesn't matter whether you mow lawns or you're out here running a store or whatever you're doing, do it to the Lord and try to find some way to harness it for kingdom business. You're not here to entertain yourself to death. 
you're here because you are prosecuting a battle for the souls of men and women. Because the kingdom of God is among us and his kingdom is coming. And we must work while it is day. For as Jesus says, the night is coming when no one can work. May God help us to be those people.